We'll hear argument first in United States versus Georgia and Goodman versus Georgia. General Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act validly abrogates the state's sovereign immunities as applied to the class of cases involving the unconstitutional treatment of disabled inmates. That result follows from this Court's decisions in Nevada against Hibbs and Tennessee against Lane. In Lane, this Court held that it was clear beyond peradventure that Congress had an adequate basis to enact prophylactic legislation to ensure that individuals with disabilities had access to public services. In reaching that conclusion, this Court surveyed a broad array of evidence, not just limited to the court access context, and indeed surveyed evidence involving prisons in particular. As a result, the sole remaining question, and the only question in Lane on which this Court applied an as-applied analysis, is the question of whether or not Title II's remedies are congruent and proportional as applied to the particular context. Here, the context of the discriminatory, inhumane, or otherwise unconstitutional treatment of inmates with disabilities. Now, if one applies the congruence and proportionality analysis of Lane in particular in the prison context, it easily passes constitutional muster. For all of the factors that this Court emphasized as making Title II appropriate in the court access context, the absence of absolute mandates, the inherent flexibility of the reasonable modification standard, the fact that benefits are limited to otherwise eligible individuals, the defenses for fundamental alterations or undue burdens, all of those factors apply with full force in this context. With respect to the reasonableness aspect, um, in Turner versus Safley, uh, we said prison administrators have a good deal of latitude in the prison context in, in order to maintain order. Now, do you see the reasonableness requirements of the uh, Disabilities Act as being congruent with the Turner-Safley reasonableness analysis? Absolutely, Justice O'Connor. And one of the reasons that I think that Title II is particularly congruent and proportional in the prison context is the reasonable modification standard, which, after all, uses the term reasonableness, is very well amenable to the kind of Turner deference standard this Court applied. And, of course, just last term, this Court in Johnson's, Johnson against California and Wilkinson, in the Wilkinson case, Cutter against Wilkinson, applied deference to prison officials even in the context of strict scrutiny. And are so I think it applies a fortiori. I'm sorry, Mr. Are Mr. you Justice. suggesting that the, the ADA does not add to the burdens of the state officials? It just simply tracks what's already required under Turner? Mr. Chief Justice, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not up here today saying there's no prophylaxis at all with respect to Title II. But I think it is proportional and congruent, and I think the prophylactic gap between what the Constitution protects and what Title II protects is relatively narrow in the prison context, both because if you think about one set of claims, the Turner claims, much of that deference can be brought in under the reasonable modification standard. And then if you think of the other class of cases, those involving deliberate indifference, I think in those class of cases, this is the prison context, is one of the rare contexts in which the state is under an affirmative obligation to provide accommodations to the medical needs of inmates, including disabled inmates. And I think the fact that here's a case where the Constitution requires affirmative accommodation also helps narrow the, the prophylactic gap. Under Turner, one of the considerations that can be taken into account are the budgetary limitations of state officials. Does that apply under the ADA as well? I think it certainly could. I think if you look at the cases that we collect at footnote 17 of our reply brief, which are cases where the lower courts have applied Turner-style deference to claims under the Rehabilitation Act or under Title II, I think some of those courts of appeals have clearly taken into account those kind of budgetary concerns. Of course, all of the concerns you've mentioned could be taken care of by injunctive relief. You don't necessarily need damages. Well, I think damages are an important aspect of the remedial scheme, Justice Kennedy. I would also point out that because a number of states have challenged the application of Title II in the prison context in particular as not being valid Commerce Clause legislation, it's not a foregone conclusion that there would be injunctive relief available. But I do think if we want to focus on well, the damages — Well, if we held the Act was applicable uh, for injunctive relief, it would, it would be. It was, uh, the, the purport of your argument is that you could have attorney's fees and 
triple damages where trial attorneys levy against the State Treasury, which is, which is what the Eleventh Amendment is, is, is largely concerned with. That all of that would follow from what you've said so far. Well, I'm not sure about the treble damages, but certainly compensatory damages would be available. This Court, of course, in Barnes against Gorman has already said that punitive damages are not available under Title II. And I think if you look at compensatory damages — I know they're not available under Title II, but, I mean, it's a constitutional matter. There's certainly nothing barring them based on what you've told us so far. Well, I, I, I think punitive damages would be a harder case in terms of proportional incongruence. But this Court has, even in the absence of congressional action, found damages to be an appropriate remedy for unconstitutional or unlawful state conduct. Take the Bivens cases, for example, or the Franklin case in Title IX. And I think if damages are appropriate where Congress hasn't acted, I think where Congress has provided for damages, damages are clearly an appropriate remedy. But with respect to damages in particular, I think it's important to note that the prophylactic gap here is not large, because in the Title IX context, in the Gebser case, this Court has already said that in order for there to be compensatory damages, there needs to be a showing of deliberate indifference. And now there may be some difference between what deliberate indifference means under Gebser and what deliberate indifference means under Farmer against Brennan, but whatever that small gap is, that certainly seems manageable. General Clement, in two respects, I think you have addressed the cost concern by comparing in your brief the federal experience, which is subject to these controls, and you said it wasn't an inordinate expense, but you also pointed out that every state prison system is subject to the Rehabilitation Act because they get federal funds. Is there a difference between the obligation that state systems would have under the Rehabilitation Act and under the ADA? No, Justice Ginsburg, we don't think so. But one thing I think it's important to to emphasize is that although at the current time period all 50 states take federal funds for their prisons so that all 50 states are subject to the Rehabilitation Act, that wasn't true at the time that the ADA was passed. And I think what that illustrates is both that Title II plays an important gap-filling role and also that for whatever reason I think this is an area, prisons taking federal funds, where the degree to which they take federal funds may wax and wane over time. And so I don't think this is a situation where Title II is purely duplicative of the Rehabilitation Act, but the difference is really in terms of the scope of the coverage, not in terms of the substantive obligations under the And the damage remedy is available under the Rehabilitation Act. Damages are available. Yes, they are, as to the states. General Clement, I'm, I'm interested in another, uh, another uh, statute that, uh, that has applicability in the circumstances, and that's uh, Section 1983 and the uh, Prison Litigation Reform Act. Under the, under the Prison Litigation Reform Act, if you're bringing a constitutional claim under Section 1983, you have to exhaust your, your prison remedies before you can uh, do that. And that is not the case here. Is that right? No, I don't think that is right, Justice Scalia. I think that we would, we would say that the PLRA fully applies to claims under Title II, and there is an exhaustion remedy. There is also, of course, an exhaustion remedy inherent in Title II, because in order to get a reasonable modification, you have to ask for the modification in the first place. We also think that the PLRA applies in all its provisions to Title II claims. And one important provision to keep in mind is 1997EE, 42 U.S.C. 1997EE, which is a limitations on the damages that are available. And under that provision, in order to get damages for emotional or mental injury, you have to also show some sort of physical injury. And the lower courts have interpreted that to require at least the kind of more than de minimis injury you need under the Eighth Amendment. And I think the PLRA, together with Title II, in the particular area of damages, which is, as Justice Kennedy has pointed out, is the particular area of concern under the Eleventh Amendment, is even a further narrowing of the relief that's available and a further narrowing of the prophylaxis under Title II. So I do think the PLRA is actually something that actually helps make sure that the remedy here is congruent and proportional. May I ask you to comment on this, this problem that, this, that troubles me a little bit? If we hold this uh, provision unconstitutional because it is not uh, uh, congruent and proportional and so forth, does it not follow that the Title II is entirely unconstitutional and cannot even be enforced by injunctive relief? 
because of the lack of a Commerce Clause nexus? Is that the concern? Well, the, the whole basis for the constitutionality of the statute, I think, is the enforcement clause of the 14th Amendment. Well, it was, when it was originally enacted, Justice Stevens, it was supported by both the Commerce Clause and, of course, that, That's true of Title II as well as Title I? That, that is, that's true of the statute generally, and it's true of Title II. We would, we would certainly defend the Act as valid Commerce Clause legislation, but I do think that is a much more difficult argument as to Title II generally, and particularly difficult argument with respect to prisons. I think in that respect it's right. telling that if you go back to the government's brief in Yeski, when we were dealing with constitutional challenges to the application of Title II to prisons, the government focused all its energy on defending it as valid Section 5 legislation right. and dealt with the Commerce Clause in, in a footnote. So I think we certainly at that point were of the view that the Section 5 authority was the much stronger basis to defend the statute, especially in the prison context. What I'm suggesting is that it is not merely a matter of damages that's at issue here, but the entire validity of Title II. We agree with that, Justice Stevens, and I would say with respect to — I mean, we, again, I don't want to mislead you in the sense that we would be here defending it as Commerce Clause legislation, but I think that's a tricky argument. If it's possible, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for a Thank you, General. Um, Mr. Bagenstos? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> the Americans with Disabilities Act is congruent and proportional as applied to the prison setting for essentially three reasons. The first is the nature of the constitutional right that's at stake in the prison setting. As in the access to court setting, this is a setting where states have affirmative constitutional duties, including in many circumstances duties of accommodation of inmates' disabilities. The second reason relates to the record of constitutional violations in this context, a record in the context of state treatment of inmates with disabilities that is extensive, that is judicially documented and confirmed on a nationwide basis. And the third reason relates to the tailoring of the ADA remedy, which, uh, the, which General Clement has spoken about to some extent already, both limitations inherent in the ADA itself and in the PLRA, which fully applies to ADA cases. To those violations uh, that you allude to, uh, it, is there an extensive record of violations by the state of Georgia? There, there is not the same. The, the record of, of constitutional violations is nationwide. We don't have any judicial findings of well, constitutional violations the, by the Georgia. Money is not coming from the nation. It's coming from the state of Georgia. Uh, was the state of Georgia guilty of uh, constitutional violations? Well, I mean, of course, in, in this case, the, the lower court said that there might have been a constitutional violation allowed that claim to proceed in the campaign. No, no, my, I mean a record, a record that would have justified applying against the state of Georgia uh, prophylactic measures. Well, we think the prophylactic measures are justified by the nationwide record, just as in this court. Even case. against people who, who played no part in that nationwide record. Well, that's that's this court's cases on prophylactic nationwide legislation. Absolutely, you know, in Tennessee versus Lane, this court upheld nationwide prophylactic legislation on the basis of a record that included constitutional violations in only eight states. Here we have a record that touches on at least 37 states. If you look at pages 20 to 36 of our opening brief, in, in is this relevant to the? I just saw there's a. I just by chance, one of the cases in the SG's brief involved Georgia juvenile facilities where mentally uh, ill patients were uh, restrained, hit, shackled, put in restraint chairs for hours, sprayed with pepper spray. Well, I think that, that seemed to be one instance coming out of Georgia. I think that's right. I think that's was that before or after the enactment of this statute? I believe that was pre-ADA, Your Honor. But I think that the, po the point is that the record of constitutional violations here is a nationwide record. It's a record that includes some incidents from Georgia. It's a record that includes many incidents from many other states, as I say, 37 different states. It's a record of constitutional violations that's been judicially confirmed. We have courts actually finding in final adjudications I, I'm looking violations. at the chart uh, in, in one of the amicus briefs, uh, which, which shows that there are, for Georgia, and it lists all the states, for Georgia, zero arguable state violations uh, prior to the act. Well, I think that's be, I mean, I think that's because they exclude but, juvenile facilities from their Well, state and local violations. But, right. but state and local uh, units don't enjoy the, the, the sovereign immunity of the state. I mean, you know. They need this act to, to sue them. 
Well, I would say in Georgia, of course, state and, of course, local facilities are arms of the state in Georgia. That's been the judicial holding. And so for 11th Amendment purposes, we would consider them. But I would say the record of constitutional violations here that justifies nationwide prophylaxis is really far more extensive than the record that's been before this Court in Tennessee v. Lane and Nevada v. Hibbs and touches on even more states than, you know, the nationwide literacy test ban that was upheld in Oregon v. Mitchell. At the time this Court upheld that, only 22 states had literacy tests, I, I think. May I ask you this, uh, the, the notion of our reviewing the adequacy of the evidence before Congress is something that's always so, seemed sort of puzzling to me. Do you know what, what, is, what standard do you suggest that we should apply in determining whether the evidence before Congress was sufficient? Yeah, I think he's right. In determining whether the evidence before Congress was sufficient, I think, you know, this Court has said, I, I think the standard comes from City of Bernie. It's the congruence and proportionality test, but it recognizes that Congress has to have a great deal of leeway in determining where the line between enforcement and substantive change in the law lies. And, you know, here we have whatever standard we use, the kind of record of constitutional violations that justifies prophylaxis. We have, we have constitutional rights that impose on states obligations of accommodation. So the ADA is in no circumstances. I understand your view is that whatever the standard is, you win. But I'm just curious, do you have a, <laughs> do you have a formulation of what the proper standard should be? Well, as I said, I think I do think that the proper standard should be the City of Bernie standard of congruence and proportionality, exercised with the kind of deference that this Court said in Bernie, which I think this Court adopted in Lane, um, to the fact-finding capabilities of the of the of the Congress. Um, I understand your submission, and it's what I heard from the Solicitor General as well, on the difference between enforcement and the substantive right. You're assuring us that we don't need to worry about that because there's no great difference between what you think is required under the. ADA and what's required under the Constitution. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I think there is clearly a difference, right? There's a prophylactic sweep to the statute. It's just that it's not very much in this context for a number of reasons, one being the nature of the constitutional rights, that they impose requirements that are affirmative duties, the other being the way the reasonableness language of the ADA has been consistently read by lower courts to take account of context, and another being the Pr- Prison Litigation Reform Act, which further ties the ADA. I'm just wondering if that's a, a reasonable reading of the ADA, which I had always understood to be a significant change in in terms of what rights are available to the disabled. And it seems to me quite different from Turner against Safley, which talks about the demands of the prison environment and and a high level of deference to prison administrators. Do you think that approach is, in fact, consistent with what Congress had in mind with the ADA? I think that the approach of taking into account the significant state interest in uniform treatment in the prison setting uniquely, yes, is very much consistent with what Congress had in mind, just as this Court in the Cutter case you know, read the compelling state interest language, much more stringent language about, the, about what the state has to satisfy. One, one, one concern is that uh, in the prison situation, uh, the prison is exerting control over all aspects of the prisoner's daily life. That's very different from just court access, as in Tennessee versus Lane. And it could require very extensive requirements, perhaps. Um, Is that a concern, or should it be in the congruence and proportionality examination? Well, I think there are two sides to that coin. I think definitely the scope of the ADA in the prison setting, you know, is important. I, I think that the lower court's reading of reasonable, which I think is the, is the reasonable reading of reasonable, if I may say so, is, you know, reasonable takes account of context, and reasonableness takes account of proportion as well, the kind of accommodation that may be reasonable where what's at stake is the ability of an inmate with a disability to go to the bathroom safely, like Mr. Goodman alleges, may be entirely unreasonable where what's at stake is attending an arts and crafts class or something like that. So I think that is important. But I think the flip side of the, of the state's complete control over every aspect of the inmate's environment is this is one of the few areas of government where states have affirmative constitutional duties. Mr. Bagenstoss, on, on this point, do we have any figures on what, I guess it's the Rehabilitation Act that applies to the federal prisons, do we have any figures on, on what that has cost uh, in, in required accommodations? You know, I don't know the figures to that. Perhaps the Solicitor General can answer as to what the burden has been on, on the federal government. I think, you know, the, the Solicitor General states in his brief, in his reply brief particularly, that the burden has not been significant. The government has not. It, apply, it, it applies to state prisons as well because it's, it's spending clause legislation. Yeah, that's, true. that's true. It does apply to state prisons as well. 
Justice Ginsburg. Um, however, we, you know, we obviously can't be sure that it's always going to cover every state prison. It hasn't at times in the past. It, it, it might not at times in the future. I think, you know, one of the significant aspects of the Rehabilitation Act is, and I think the amicus brief filed on behalf of Mr. Goodman by the former President George H.W. Bush really emphasizes this. The ADA was passed based on a firm conclusion by Congress that the Rehabilitation Act had failed, that it hadn't worked. And I think the record of constitutional violations here shows that, that we have such an extensive record of judicially confirmed, judicially established findings of constitutional violations in the prison context. And we have constitutional rights that impose on states the same kinds of requirements, not in all particulars, but in, in very similar ways as the ADA does itself. I think that's where, that's where the congruence and proportionality really comes in. Why, why is it so clear that damages uh, are, are, are necessary and that equitable relief shouldn't suffice? It, well, it's puzzling. It's puzzling to me uh, the, the notion that uh, trial attorneys and their clients can levy upon the funds in state treasuries under the Eleventh Amendment. Why is it congruent and proportional to allow that? Well, a couple of points about that. I mean, the, the first is the deterrent function of damages is really essential in this context. I think that's the import of the record of constitutional violations. Section 1983 failed. I think the second point about damages is they're very limited in the prison context. They're limited by this Court's decision in Barnes, no punitive. Well, well, if you say Section 1983 failed, the ADA could allow equitable remedies. The ADA could allow equitable remedies, but could certainly allow and why, and why shouldn't that why shouldn't that suffice well i think you know this this something this court has said repeatedly that the deterrent function of damages is important and here we have we have a very good we have very good evidence that we need deterrence in this context we need deterrence because dam- because constitutional violations have continued and continued why, don't, that, why don't you need it for 1983 violations constitutional what? violations not just prophylaxis well, there, but actual constitutional violations by the prisons under 1983 I think it, that don't happen to, to relate to, uh, to the handicapped and, and thus uh, are not covered by this legislation. You can't get damages there. Well, you know, I think with respect to constitutional violations that might not relate to people with disabilities, you know, that, that's something Congress could certainly consider in other legislation. Here, Congress had staring in front of it, right, a record of constitutional violations that showed Right, proven constitutional violations that showed that the 1983 remedy, which doesn't authorize damages against the state, wasn't working. We need to have some additional remedy. We need some additional deterrence and spur to compliance on the part of states. But I think it's also important to note how limited the damages remedy in this context is. It's not just the absence of punitive damages. It's not just, you know, we also have the, the, uh, the, the provision of the PLRA that says no damages for mental and emotional injury in the absence of physical injury, which means that in the kinds of cases that are peripheral to core constitutional rights, we're not going to have damages anyway. It also, we also have the exhaustion requirement of the PLRA, which imposes on plaintiffs the requirement that they go to the prison and tell them, here's the problem, which means that if we have a case that satisfies the PLRA, we're very likely to have deliberate indifference, a, a, a problem that, that, that prison officials have refused to resolve. Wait, but, um, you know, in 1983, when you exhaust your prison remedies, the prison fixes what was wrong, and that's the end of it. But under this Act, you go through your prison remedies. What do you ask the prison for? Money? The prison can't give you money, so they say, no, you can't get your money. Well, I, I mean, it, the, the prison remedy thing is, it, it, the only thing it does is, uh, is make it take a longer time to get to court, but it, it does the prison no good. It's going to be liable for damages anyway. Well, I think, that, of course, the prison can reduce its damages liability. And, of course, where we have a continuing violation after exhaustion, which is what, when people file these lawsuits, when they have continuing problems, like Mr. Goodman alleges were continuing problems in his case, we will have cases where we have very much, very likely to have deliberate indifference. And so I think that's an important thing, too. I think the other important point about Turner v. Safley that um, the Solicitor General spoke about, right, many of the constitutional rights in the prison setting that are significant here don't implicate Turner v. Safley. Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment claims don't implicate Turner v. Safley, as this Court said in the Johnson case. And we have a very substantial record of Eighth Amendment violations. Of course, the Eighth Amendment requires accommodation of serious medical needs, as this Court has said ever since Estelle v. Gamble. And serious medical needs needs is a term that's very close to the way this Court has narrowly read the disability definition in the ADA. And so I think another very significant aspect of the congruence and proportionality here is how close the ADA's disability 
definition is to the class of people who implicate constitutional rights, affirmative constitutional rights of accommodation under the Eighth Amendment itself. And so I, I think that that's another very significant aspect of, of the tightness of the fit here. Um, but here I think the most salient fact is if you ever had a record justifying prophylaxis nationwide, the record here that touches on 37 different states that includes, in many cases, statewide findings of constitutional violations, is it. It's a record that justifies certainly some prophylactic legislation, at least, at the very least, the minimal prophylaxis that we have in the ADA in the prison setting. Um, It's a kind of of prophylaxis that's very much like the kind of prophylaxis this Court has previously upheld in Tennessee v. Lane, where we had very similar affirmative constitutional obligations, and in Nevada v. Hibbs, where we had a much less significant record nationwide of constitutional violations. Um, And and so for all those reasons, you know, we we believe that the ADA is congruent and proportional in the prison setting. And if the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Castanius. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Before I sit down today, I'd like to make three basic points, and hopefully I'll get to make, uh, elaborate on each of them a little bit. First of all, this case is not anything like Tennessee versus Lane. It doesn't involve the, the very important civil right of access to courts, access to voting booths, or anything like that. It involves well, sir, there was a reporter... Uh, who was one of the disabled people, I think, wasn't there in Tennessee versus Lane? I believe that's correct. So what is the right that that reporter has that's specific to courthouses? As I understand it, Your Honor, from reading the opinion, that uh, that right was the specific right to access the courts. It's the public right of access to see court proceedings. Like well, the was there any problem of that in Tennessee versus Lane? I thought the courthouse officials there said there'll be a trial. No problem there just whether you have to walk up the steps or don't, and we'll give you a trial down below. Is there, it's the right of access to courthouse specially? It's the right of access to courts specifically that was the context that was, uh, that was created for purpose of the as-applied analysis in Lane. The second point I hope I'll get to address today is the very fundamental differences between the prison context and the courthouse context at issue in Lane and the reasons why the prison context that that is at issue in this case makes this case so fundamentally different. The prison context, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, is one where issues of safety and security and as well from the Court's decisions, issues of federalism and deference to prison officials hold sway. Those were not at issue in Lane. And they your, your friends on the other side say that's not a big deal because the ADA looks only to reasonable accommodations. You can take all those factors into account, and presumably the lower courts would. In other words, they say you're already subject to most of these obligations anyway, and it's just a little bit extra under the ADA. But Mr. Chief Justice, we respectfully but uh, strenuously disagree with that submission. And I'll give you a very good example of what they're not talking about here. What's happening under the ADA as a practical matter in the prison context is that it's giving prisoners trials on issues like whether or not they have access to the television room in the prison. That's not a constitutional right. Before the ADA, that was never understood to be a constitutional right. Have courts of appeals approved those determinations? I'm not aware, Justice Ginsburg, of any court of appeals that has ruled on that yet, but I am aware of two district court cases. I can give you the names of them where summary judgment was denied and a trial was given to the inmate. One is Brown against King County Department of Adult Corrections. And how many has it in the district courts, how many have been rejected when it's something like um, television or recreation? Justice Ginsburg, without making any representations that I'm going to canvas the universe on this, I have not seen a case where the district court has rejected a trial in that respect. And I think, Your Honor, this gives me an opportunity to talk about one of the fundamental problems. Well, before you do, sure. as I understand it, and as the Solicitor General confirmed, you are subject to the Rehabilitation Act, where the substantive scope is the same. So... What uh, you you are saying in the prison context, this is um, undue, but you you are already subject to it under one act. And and how has that been working out? 
Justice Ginsburg, I don't have any data on that, and we haven't — we don't have any in our brief. The Solicitor General's uh, data that he put in on the Federal Bureau of Prisons came in his reply brief, and we certainly haven't but had an opportunity But do you agree that the Rehab Act uh, contains the same essential requirements as ADA? Well, it, it, the, the, the Rehabilitation Act is a little different than the ADA, but it certainly is protective of many of the same rights. I would think it would be protective of all of the same constitutional rights that — And you agree that it applies at least where the states are accepting federal money for the prison? Well, as I understand it, Justice O'Connor, the spending clause power uh, can be uh, hived down on a program-by-program basis, not just as whether the state itself is receiving it. So without knowing specifically whether we're talking about the particular program. Does it apply in in the prison in this uh, case, the Rehab Act? I don't know the answer to that as I stand here, Justice O'Connor. Mr. Scher, who's going to be representing some states uh, as amici, will presumably have uh, better information on that subject. Um, I, if you would it help if the Court said, I guess it would, but I, uh, would it get rid of this problem if the Court said, look, it says reasonable. Of course, prison has special problems and Referring, say, to Turner versus Safley, uh, said that these things about television remote controls are not really uh, normally uh, a matter of uh, unreasonableness. So, in other words, we hit, we you, you give considerable discretion to the to the warden, and uh, the act would have bite in cases where the, there is really a serious problem like this one. It's alleged to be a really serious problem. Well, uh, Justice Breyer, I think you're you're, you're right to say that, except that. That's not what the Act says. The Act says — I thought it said reasonableness. That's exactly right. And and the reasonable reasonable accommodation, a reasonable modification standard of the ADA, both generally and specifically in Title II, imposes an affirmative burden on the states, which is very much unlike the rational basis test of Cleburne. It's very much unlike the rational relationship test of Turner against Safely. Quite the contrary, what happens in these cases, and this comes up in the television cases as well as the access to chapels cases or any of the, uh, any of the cases that, uh, that the uh, petitioners have hypothesized, what happens in that case is the petitioner pleads that uh, I could access this if I only had a reasonable accommodation, and then the burden shifts to the state at that point to not just articulate reasonable grounds, but to, in fact, prove that it is not reasonable or that it would be an undue burden. There's a case that the uh, that Petitioner Goodman has cited in both of his briefs to this Court out of the Seventh Circuit called Love Against uh, Westville Correctional Facility. comes out of Indiana, and uh, this case is a great example of why, Justice Breyer, the Turner against, uh, the Turner against safely integration into the reasonableness provisions of ADA Title II won't work and isn't congruent and proportional. Is because that it, case cited some? It is. It's in both the petition, Petitioner Goodman's opening and reply briefs. In the Love case, and this is, this is a law school exam case because the prisoner put forth his case in the state of Indiana, while it was pre-Yeski, nonetheless agreed that the ADA applied to the prison and at the same time didn't present any evidence. And the prisoner won the case. And they won the case because all the state did is articulate reasons, like there was, uh, it would cost too much. And this court very clearly said, look, you didn't put any evidence, you lose. Now, that's what fa- what, that was one of the fundamental factors that caused this court to find in both Kimmel and Garrett the statutes unconstitutional. But because maybe in the prison setting, the lower courts would pay some attention to the court's recent decision in Cutter against Wilkinson with the Court made it very clear that a high level of deference, even dealing with a strict scrutiny standard for religious freedom, that a high level of deference would be paid to prison administrators' judgment of what safety and discipline requires inside a prison. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that carry over to the ADA where it to apply? Uh, you, we could say that in this you, opinion. I mean, that would make it happen, wouldn't it? You could, I mean, you could absolutely say it. The, the Court can say anything at once here. But the problem is, is that this was, this was one of the fundamental problems with ADA Title I you and with the ADA. You think that if the, if the prison uh, explained what their practices were in terms of the needs of security, 
that a lower court will then say, well, never mind that. The Supreme Court just said it. We don't have to enforce it. I, I don't think there would be that kind of lawlessness. Well, I, I, Justice Ginsburg, we're, if, if this Court were to uphold the damages remedy in this case, this would be what the states would be left to argue. And, and while it is true that you have said in a couple of recent cases that strict scrutiny is not quite as fatal, in fact, as usual, that strict scrutiny case that you're referring to is the true exception in the prison context where strict scrutiny was applied, and it involved the very important, very core 14th Amendment right against racial discrimination. Here, we're talking about a statute that was framed by Congress as uh, basically trying to change the Cleburne rule, trying to bring an added level of scrutiny to claims, equal protection type claims. You cite that case in terms of Justice Scalia's remark. Watch what we do, not what we say. Cleburne was a remarkable case in that respect. It purported to apply rational basis review, but the plaintiffs won. That's, that's exactly right, Justice Ginsburg. And in fact, the reason that the plaintiffs won is that the state in that case, the state defendants, offered four reasons, all of which were found to be not legitimate state reasons. It was a straightforward application of the but rational basis you think, test. If you think of the any conceivable basis, doesn't even have to be offered if, the, if it's indeed the rational basis test. It has been suggested that something more is going on in Claiborne, and I think in all candor one would have to say so. Because if you looked at the rational basis test that had gone before, this one looked no better, no worse? I think that, uh, that Tennessee Solicitor General Moore at the end of the Lane argument said we have to take the court as for what it does say, and it said it was applying rational basis scrutiny in that case. Mr. Castanius, suppose the court agrees with you that, uh, uh, that the response here is, is not uh, uh, proportionate and hence that uh, the prophylactic aspects of this uh, statute are invalid. Uh, there remains the fact that the statute covers actual constitutional violations for which you don't need any, any uh, uh, special proportionality. Certainly the government can allow the states to be sued for constitutional violations, and the plaintiff here claims that uh, some of the, the acts uh, uh, he's seeking uh, damages for do amount to constitutional violations. How can we possibly say that that suit does not lie? Well, I think, Your Honor, uh, there are two answers to that. First of all is Section 1983 already did that. And, and the reason that that, that may not be — my damages. You, can you get damages under 1983? Absolutely. Against the state? You can get it against state, state officers acting I — mean, State officers don't have any money. <laughs> we're, we're talking about damages against the state. Well, you cannot get damages against the state under 1983. 1983. That's right. That is exactly right. But, but the other answer, Justice, Justice Scalia, is that to get to that result, and I think it's remarkable that both petitioners' counsel stood up here, and the way they framed the question was, this is just remedial for these actual constitutional violations in prison. To get to that result, you would have to rewrite the ADA in a way that would make the, the reasonable modification or reasonable accommodations provision basically an empty vessel to put whatever constitutional law you want in. No, no, I mean, the portions that go beyond constitutional violations are no good. I'm not, I'm not going to read it unrealistically so that it only includes constitutional violations. But to the extent that it includes constitutional violations, why isn't that, uh, that lawsuit perfectly okay? Let me, let, me, let me pause for a second and think about that. The, I think the problem with that, my, my instinct is that there is a problem with that. And I think the problem with that, not just because, Your Honor, I represent the state, but I think the problem with that is that it, it is in no way congruent to the constitutional rights. In other words, what it's doing is it's giving only to a limited class of prisoners a particular set of rights. In a way, this is the this is the underbreath argument that we made in our brief that the uh, that the petitioners in their replies made fun of a little bit, but quite honestly, this is this it would be giving disabled inmates and making them into a special class for purposes of of constitutional violations that don't apply just to disabled inmates at all. 
Quite contrary. This is true. This is exactly the point I'd asked about before. This is a better point, because I thought that bridge was crossed in Lane. That is, I don't see how you can say that Lane was not giving — saying it's constitutional to have prophylactic rules. And that's why I raised the reporter. I've never heard of a First Amendment right of the paper to send a particular reporter. I mean, if there's a disabled reporter who couldn't get into the courtroom, I guess they could send a different reporter. Maybe that's a First Amendment right, but I've not heard of it. So I thought that really Lane is saying you can sweep within the prophylactic rules a lot of things that are not, in fact, constitutional violations, but simply discrimination against disabled people. I think, Justice Breyer, with regard to Lane, the right that was at issue was not the right of the paper to send a reporter. It was the right of the reporter. I think there's a First Amendment right for a newspaper, for example, to send a particular reporter to the courtroom. That's an interesting question. I never thought of that one. You don't think Lane stands for the proposition of their prophylactic rules being perfectly legitimate under the Eleventh Amendment, where you have a set of constitutional violations? Justice Breyer, I think I either misstated my answer to you because I was trying to ask you. Let me try to answer that and say to you that I think, first of all, the First Amendment right that was at issue there was the general right that's possessed by the public to attend court proceedings, not just a right that was inherent in the newspaper or a right that was prophylactically being exercised there. Justice Kennedy, you asked the Petitioner's Counsel about alternative remedies here. And I think there's an important point to make with regard to Title III of the ADA. And that's the title of the ADA that applies not to public entities, as we have here, like the State prison, but the title that applies to public accommodations, like restaurants and hotels. And it's important to note, I think, that in that title, Congress did not provide for money damages remedies. Quite the contrary. It provided for an attorney general action, and it provided for injunctive relief. And so the notion that States somehow are special and should be the ones that get damages against them for violating the — violating access rights is, in words that the Court has used in Bernie and the cases following it, that is a real indignity to the States. And beyond that, the standard that applies — Roberts. Presumably that's because the prisoners don't have a lot of choice as to which accommodations they're going to select. I'm not sure, Mr. Chief Justice, that it follows that damages follow from that observation. And I think with regard to the choices that are available to prisons, much has been made in this case about the affirmative obligations of the State to provide the minimum standards of health and safety for prisoners. And I'd point out that in the Court's decision in Descheny, specifically footnote 7, the former Chief Justice wrote for the Court that in determining both the scope and how to satisfy those, there is an enormous amount of discretion imposed in the State. So it's hard to say that that provision is allowing for — that minimal affirmative burden that's on the State is in any way congruent with the broad affirmative remedies that are at stake in this case. Now, if I could just go through very quickly the various constitutional rights that are being addressed here by the — that are being claimed here by the Petitioner, you can see in each case why it's not a proportional and congruent remedy to use Title II of the ADA to enforce them. First of all, with regard to the Equal Protection Clause, it's almost obvious from the findings of Congress that they meant to impose a higher degree of scrutiny. By citing the words of Carolaten Products as well as Matthews v. Lucas that have justified heightened scrutiny to apply to the disabled, this is almost proof positive that Title II and the ADA in general is changing the level of constitutional law. It's not enforcing. It's changing the law. Well, that just proves that they went too far. It doesn't prove that to the extent that it covers a constitutional violation, it's okay. We will say the excess is bad. Well, Justice Scalia, I think the answer to that comes back to Kimmel and Garrett. The excessive change in the constitutional law was held to have crossed the line in that case. And here we have the same problems. We have the changing of the burdens. We have the changing of the level of scrutiny. 
And we have the efforts, the same efforts that were used in Kimmel and Harris. You think the make level of scrutiny applied in Claiborne was precisely the same rational basis level that is applied in a lot of other rational basis cases? I, I think it was, Justice Stevens, because you can only talk about the conceivable remedies in the context of what the State puts forth. And perhaps a creative judge could say, aha, but that's the State you didn't think about this one. And the fact that Justice White's opinion, I think it was Justice White's opinion for the court in Cleburne, uh, didn't go on and, uh, and think about four other uh, conceivable bases, uh, I don't think is, uh, is a fault of the, the decision-making process at all. With regard to the petitioner's efforts to uh, enforce the guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment, there is no intent standard in the ADA at all. In fact, this would scrub out the deliberate indifference standard entirely, and in the, at least Goodman's reply brief, he admits that that basically would be what would happen. He says that would be appropriate prophylaxis. I think that is an astonishing claim in this case. Can we go back, Mr. Castanius, to Justice Scalia's question about the core concerns? And, and we have been told by respondents that their core concerns are sanitation, mobility, protection from physical injury. Now, that sounds to me like constitutional Eighth Amendment heartland. And and in that case, Justice Ginsburg, if I could just briefly conclude, in that case, Justice Ginsburg, the Constitution through Section 1983 does provide a remedy. It will provide a remedy that will get the prison to stop that. If there are no other questions, we'd ask that the judgment be affirmed. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Scher, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, <clears throat> let me begin by attempting to answer Justice Scalia's questions, question about the Rehabilitation Act. My understanding is that the key difference between the Rehabilitation Act and Title II is, the, is that the Rehabilitation Act requires intentional conduct, which obviously is a much uh, a much higher standard. Um, and, and instead of dwelling on the record uh, offered in support of, uh, of Title II, and we agree with Georgia that the record was not sufficient, I'd like to focus on the congruence and proportionality requirements, which are quite separate from the record requirement and which we believe are independently um, dispositive in this case for, for two separate reasons. But first, I think it's important to recall the two key purposes that the congruence and proportionality analysis serves. One of those, as the Court has reiterated, uh, is to prevent Section 5 from becoming a kind of police power uh, through which Congress can regulate the states and impose litigation and other burdens on them as though they were mere corporations. Uh, the second purpose, of course, is, is ensuring that the specific remedies that Congress chooses, and especially the abrogation of sovereign immunity, sovereign immunity that this Court has held is within Congress's Section 5 power, are a measured response to Congress's uh, legitimate goals. And, and that's obviously important because of the, of, the, of the tension between the Section 5 power on the one hand and the 11th Amendment and other provisions of the Constitution that protect the state sovereignty. I just understand this yes. point. Are you, in fact, arguing that the statute might be, I know you don't agree with it, might be proportionate and congruent with respect to all of its prohibitions, but to the extent it provides for a damage remedy, then it crosses the line? I, I, I do believe that the statute could be invalidated on that ground alone, but I don't think the Court needs to do that because I think it's clearly not congruent with constitutional requirements. And, and I believe there are four reasons for that. But is that because it has a damage remedy or would it be equally a non-congruent without the damage remedy? That's what I'm trying to Following up on Justice Kennedy's question to your your colleague. Well, the way, the, the way I would view it is that the damage remedy is disproportionate uh, to Congress's legitimate goals in this case for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, as in, uh, uh, as in Florida prepaid and some of this, some of this court's other, uh, decisions, the, uh, the ab- abrogation of sovereign immunity is not limited to the specific areas that Congress and the courts have identified as the greatest, uh, concern from a constitutional standpoint. And number two, the abrogation of sovereign immunity is not, uh, limited to the states uh, or categories of states uh, where there has been a finding of, uh, of unconstitutional action. 
So, so we do think that that would be a sufficient basis uh, to invalidate this statute's abrogation of sovereign immunity. Uh, but we also think that the statute uh, is not at all congruent with the requirements of the Constitution. And as I said, I think there are four reasons for that. Mr. Shea, before you go on, may I just ask you one question on the point that you made, and you made it in the brief, about the failure to establish a, some kind of a history of unconstitutional action in this particular state. Do I understand you to claim that that is a, a that a record of some sort must be made by Congress, or can a record of that sort be made uh, in the courts in the course of litigation as a predicate for a particular lawsuit like this one? Well, uh, City of Bernie and other courts, uh, other decisions of this court say that to be a valid exercise of Congress's Section 5 authority, it has to be a response to a record of constitutional violations. Right, but, Congress, to to norm, but Congress normally uh, operates on a, on, on a national scale uh, so that, I mean, we, I guess we would normally say, well, you can show 40 states out of 50 we're, we're, we're in trouble. That's probably good enough to get you across the line, at least. Uh, but you're not saying that. So are you saying that Congress has got to, to make the record with respect to each individual state? No, I'm not claiming that Congress necessarily has to make the record, but, but I believe the record has to have been created before Congress acts. Otherwise, so the legislation isn't a response. So it could be done in the litigation of this case, then. There could be a, a, a trial record of prior violations. No, I, I, I don't think the record in this case would satisfy it because this — because — No, but my question is, where does the record have to be made? Does Congress have to make it on a state-by-state -state basis, or may that record be made uh, in, in the course of, of a trial in a particular state as a predicate for subjecting that state to liability in this instance? Well, this, this Court's su decision suggests that the record has to at least have been within Congress's awareness at the time the statute was passed. So that Congress could have known this, whether they specifically adverted to it or not. That would be sufficient. I think that's correct. <clears throat> um, again, four, four reasons why, why Title II is not congruent with the, uh, with the requirements of the Constitution. Um, first, as in Garrett, the substantive accommodation duty imposed by Title II far exceeds the requirements of the Constitution. And, and to see why, we need look no further than Mr. Goodman's complaints uh, that are in the Joint Appendix, the government's Addendum C, and the Justice Department's implementing regulations, which are found at 28 CFR Section 35.130B. Uh, and if you, if you look at, at, at Mr. Goodman's complaint, yes, there are some allegations there that, that obviously raise constitutional issues, but there are a lot of allegations that clearly state a claim under the Justice Department's interpretation of, of Title II, but equally clearly don't raise constitutional issues. For example, uh, on page 65, he has a claim uh, seeking to make the TV lounge and other entertainment facilities wheelchair accessible. Uh, pages 53, 57, and 82, uh, he, he makes a claim for better access to recreation facilities, rehabilitative exercises, and physical therapy. At page 64 of the Joint Appendix, he, uh, he makes a claim to force the state to install wheelchair-accessible bathrooms. And I'm saying this to help you. I'd love to get reason two. I'm wondering. <laughs> okay. E even if they're bad, why aren't the other ones good? Well, in order to abrogate the state's sovereign immunity, uh, there has to have been a valid exercise of Congress's power. And, uh, and there has to be a statute that, that represents a valid exercise of that power. Otherwise, there's no basis for subjecting the states to, uh, to liability. So I don't think it's enough just to say uh, maybe, there, maybe there is an Eighth Amendment claim here uh, that's legitimate and, and maybe, therefore, in this case, the state sovereign immunity can be abrogated. It has to be done pursuant to a legitimate exercise of Congress's power. Uh, reason, num reason number two, uh, Justice Kennedy, is, is that as in Bernie and Garrett, even where constitutional issues are implicated, Title II effectively imposes heightened scrutiny on many decisions that are subject to rational basis review under the Constitution. For example, access to the law library, uh, religious services, associational rights, those sorts of things. And that, I think, is the key distinction between this case and, and Lane and Hibbs. Uh, and so, as the Court put it in Garrett, even with the undue burden exception, the statute makes unlawful a range of alternative responses that would be reasonable under the Constitution, but would fall short of imposing an undue burden uh, on the employer. Um, 
Number three, as in Garrett, Title II prohibits standards and criteria that have a disparate impact on the disabled, even though that obviously wouldn't be enough to establish a constitutional violation if the disabled were a suspect class. And again, the Court need only look at the Justice Department's regulations uh, to, to, to see how uh, they impose a disparate impact requirement. And fourth, again, as in Kimmel and Garrett, Title II reverses the burden of proof. Uh, as the Court held in Garrett, under the Constitution, classifications based on disability are prima facie. Why isn't all that true of Lane? Everything you've said is also true of the prophylactic part of Lane. I mean, I've never heard that people took seriously, though well, maybe they should have, but before the ADA, I've never heard there was a, a constitutional right of a disabled person to go to a courthouse on the second floor. There were second floor courthouses all over the country. I don't know that was true of the bathrooms. I don't know it was true of a lot of things in courthouses. So I think your argument could be made in schools, courthouses, all over the place. And I take it that Lane said prophylaxis, whatever the word is, of that sort is fine under, under Title II, given a core of constitutional violations. So how do you distinguish that? Well, I think it, one of the ways is the one, is the one I just mentioned, uh, mentioned a minute ago. It's, uh, Lane was certainly dealing with rights that have been considered. I mean, by the honest, the, the average public, you had a constitutional right? I, I mean, you might have. I might, I might be surprised, but interesting. Well, uh, I, the average person could have brought a lawsuit, a person in a wheelchair, and said all the courthouses in this country or in this county are on the second floor and more of the bathrooms. Uh, I need a special bathroom. And they would have won without the ADA. Why did we need the ADA? Then? Well, I'm, I'm not sure the claim — I'm not sure, Justice Breyer, that the claim of the person who wanted access to the courthouse to serve as a reporter was necessary to, resu- to the result in Lane in all of that. Ah, ah, you're saying — what I just heard was it's the reporter just was a, a stand-in for the average person, that the average person had these constitutional rights, which may have been a fun- — I, th- I think that would be one way of, un- of understanding it, but not the only way. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, General uh, Clement, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Before I say anything else, I want to just clarify that the scope of the Rehab Act and Title II is really coextensive. Uh, Mr. Shear made a reference to the fact that you need intentional conduct under the Rehab Act. I think that was true for a while in the lower courts with respect to damages claims. I think after this Court's decision in Gebser, in the context of damages claims, the lower courts have generally required deliberate indifference both in the Rehabilitation Act context and in the Title II Act context to the extent they've, they've reached the issue. But with respect to the substantive obligations, they really are identical. And I do think that's important in a couple of ways. In particular, I think it's worth remembering here that the damages remedy in Title II, and this is different than Title I, where there was a specific provision for back pay, but in Title II, the damages remedy is just an incorporation of the damages remedy available under the Rehab Act, which in turn incorporates Title VI and Title IX remedies. And those, of course, are entirely judge-made. And so one of the things this Court recognized in Gebser in deciding there had to be deliberate indifference for a compensatory damages claim is this Court said the judge-made nature of those remedies gives the Court a particularly free hand in making those remedies make sense in terms of the statute and I would think a fortiori in terms of the Constitution. So, General, when you uh, — earlier you told us that this doesn't add much to the Constitution in Turner versus Safley and then — we hear about access to the TV lounge, which doesn't sound like a constitutional, deliberate indifference Eighth Amendment claim. Um, I mean, if it's important to us how much of this applies, how do we address that issue? Well, let me address the specter of all these claims for TV access, because I do think that that's something that can be taken care of in any number of respects. One is a, a sensible application of Turner-type principles to the reasonable modification standard can certainly be done in a way to weed out those claims. I also think, especially given Justice Kennedy's principal concern with damages, I think here's an area where the PLRA is particularly helpful, because I don't know what kind of physical injury you're going to be able to show to being denied access to the TV room. And since that's what you need to show under the PLRA in order to recover any damages for mental and emotional suffering, that I suppose you could try to bring a claim for emotional suffering for not seeing TV. I'm not sure which way that would cut. But in any event, I I, I think in those contexts, the PLRA is, is, is the gateway you need to some physical injury. So I think that's going to help weed these out as a matter of damages claims. And so I think that's going to have a helpfulness, too. Also, I think in some, in some sense, you can't lose 
lose sight of the fact that perhaps the reason that somebody's being denied access to the TV room is because they're in a wheelchair on the second floor, and the TV room and the law library and the religious services and everything else they need in the prison is on the first floor. And in those contexts, it may be an appropriate degree of prophylaxis. But I guess what I would say is I would think that this Court would want to interpret the P- uh, I'm sorry, would want to interpret Title II in a way that avoids constitutional problems rather than in a way that engenders it. And so to the extent the access to the TV room is critical to the constitutionality of the statute, I think the reasonable modification standard provides plenty of tools to, to apply Turner-type principles and ameliorate the constitutional problems. I mean, if you compare this case with Cutter against Wilkinson from last term, there you had a statutory strict scrutiny standard that was specifically directed at the prisons in one other context. And nonetheless, this Court said that can be applied with Turner deference-type principles. Here you have a statute that applies broadly, and I would think it would be a very easy act of of interpretation and constitutional avoidance to say that in the prison context, we're going to interpret in a way that avoids constitutional difficulties. If I could try to address just one or two specific questions. Justice Souter, you asked about the, the practical experience of the federal government. And as we point out in our opening brief at page 45, it's been less than 1% of our uh, litigation and less than 2% of our compliance costs. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, General. The case is submitted.